So we're continuing our series, God at Work, and um, I've been doing Take Your Preacher to Work Day. I'm only going to get to do that for a couple more weeks, so if you're interested, email Cheryl at pvcc.org. But this week, I went to work with Tara McCain. Can you put that first picture up there? So Tara works at CASA. Um, she's a supervisor. Uh, that's court-appointed special advocate. It is for people who are in the foster system um, or adoption system who need an independent advocate for that child. And listen, adoption and foster is, fostering is not for everyone. But outside of those two things, the biggest difference you can make in someone's life uh, who is in that system is to be a CASA worker. And y'all know some CASA workers like Kay Wood. Uh, Randy Harris, who is a preacher friend of mine that has preached here several times, he is a CASA worker. In fact, Tammy Chapin won the CASA Volunteer of the Year Award last year. Um, she is a, a rock star at CASA. And basically what you do is you walk alongside a kid who needs to make sure that they have someone advocating for them in this system and in all the brokenness. These are people who run into a broken, fractured family and take care of the most vulnerable. And I, sometimes, you know, when you go, you have to figure out, what's God doing here? I didn't have to do that this time. Like, it's, it's really obvious that Jesus, who said, uh, bring the little children to me, Jesus, who said, anyone who causes one of the little ones to stumble um, is in great danger and needs to examine themselves. These people are doing that. Um, and if you're interested in doing that, listen, there are over a thousand kids in foster care in Pulaski County alone, and over 700 of them don't have an advocate. And so if you are willing to do that, it takes 15 volunteer hours a month. It is not for everybody, but for those who are called, you are needed. And you can email, um, I'm just going to tell you the email address, xgroom at pulaskicountycasa.org. Org. Uh, one of the workers there, and these people are wonderful people who have a giant heart who is, their heart is constantly broken, but they also get to see amazing, amazing stories of reconciliation, redemption, all kinds of powerful stuff. But one of the workers there has 18 children, nine boys and nine girls. Normally when I tell someone I have five kids, they're like, woo. But she looked at me like, rookie. So, how do you see God at your work? And what makes you do your work? So today we're going to talk about money. And the reason we're going to talk about money is because one of the reasons that almost all of us go to work is because we have bills to pay. We have people to feed. Or maybe we have ourselves to feed, but we need money. So we think a lot about how to get it, uh, what, what to do with it how to get more of it. And by the way, I'm probably talking to a lot of people who don't think they have enough of it, which is ironic given our station in life because I am talking to and as a rich person. I'm talking to a lot of rich people. Globally speaking, historically speaking, you live in the very top, the tip of the iceberg. And the temptation in places like America is to look at the people who have a little bit more or maybe even a lot more than us and forget just how much 
we have. And the Bible talks a lot about money, how to, how to use it, what to do with it, um, why it shouldn't become the center of a person's life. In fact, in a passage that you've probably heard if you've grown up in church, one of the earliest Christians, this guy named Paul, wrote a letter pretty soon after the resurrection of Jesus happened. He wrote a letter to a young church planner in Ephesus named Timothy. And Paul writes this young church planner how to talk to people like us, people who are rich. And here's what he says. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. In other words, he's writing what he's writing, not because you being rich or wanting to be rich is a bad thing, you evil person, but because he's concerned for you. He's writing this because he's concerned for you. you you're, you're walking into a trap you may not know about. And into many foolish and harmful desires. Desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. If you could go to that next one. command. So here's what you do. Command those who are rich, us, in this present world, because this your wealth isn't going to outlive your life. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, because there's a correlation between having a lot of money and having an overinflated sense of self. Not to be arrogant. Not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Because joy doesn't come from money. It comes from God. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Did you catch what Paul is saying? Command those who are rich how to be rich. We don't think about how to be rich, us rich people. We think about how to get richer, how to get more. And and Paul is saying, here's what you need to know, what we need to know. We have to think about how, now that we're rich, and if you can eat three times a day, you're rich. Globally, historically speaking, you're rich. Now that you're rich, congratulations, by the way, you've arrived. Now that you're rich we got to figure out how we're going to be rich. And since this is a huge part of why we go to work, why some of us may even work jobs we don't particularly feel called to, we don't enjoy, we don't feel like maybe we're serving the world, since, since this is a huge reason behind the reason why we work, then let's talk about this. Let's let God work on us so that we can make sure God is at work with us tomorrow. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out called All the Money in the World. It was actually based on a true story of the Getty family in Los Angeles. They were uber wealthy, and they got kid, they, uh, one of their grandkids got kidnapped, and the uber wealthy granddad wouldn't pay the ransom. Now, I didn't see that movie because Leslie and I have a lot of kids, and to go see a movie requires basically a down payment on a house paying babysitters, but... Um, it's based on a true story. And there's a proverb. We're going to look through a lot of proverbs today. But there's a proverb that actually talks about this exact problem. And here's what the proverb says. It says something like, If you're rich, you can pay a ransom. If somebody kidnaps a kid of yours, you can pay the ransom. But if you're not rich, nobody's going to kidnap your kids. That's honestly what the proverb is saying. And what it's saying is brilliant because it's saying this big idea that I think 
one of the deceitfulness of wealth that we don't pay attention to. You think, I think, that the more money I have, the more security I have. But the truth is a lot more complicated. Because having money invites a whole nother level of security into your life. Ironically, in making that movie, the, the lead star, Mark Wahlberg, it turned out a few weeks after it was released, he made a thousand times more money than his female co-star. And there was a public outrage about that. So much so that Mark Wahlberg had to give his money back. Because, and this is important, money can cause just as many problems as it solves. In the words of the great theologian P. Diddy, more money, more problems, right? <laughs> but that does not mean that having less money le- means less problems. And this is one of the things I love about the Bible. The Bible is incredibly nuanced when it comes to how it talks about money. But it, one of the big warnings throughout from Genesis to Revelation, is don't let money become the center of your life. Don't let it become the thing around which all of the things have been, are governed. Because if you do, you will not become the kind of person you want to be. And other people want to be around. And you know this because you've been around people who've had money at the center of their life. I am not talking about just rich people or uber rich people. I'm talking about people on every class level who have made money the center of their life. In the words of Dorothy Parker, if you want to know what God thinks about money, just look at who it gave it to. And, and the truth is, money isn't going to be able to do what you think it's going to do. In fact, there was a billionaire a few years ago who said, the guy's name is David Siegel, he made billions of dollars, and he said, listen, money doesn't make you happy. It just makes you unhappy in a better part of town. Which I think is true. And, and the reason I'm saying this is, can we trust all the people who have gone before us, the men and women who have gone before us, who have had what you think would make your life complete? Can you trust all these people who have gone before us as they're radioing back and saying, Oh, I spent my life pursuing something that actually couldn't hold the weight I was giving it. Because from the beginning of the Bible, it's been warning us about making money the center of our life. And the answer is not to become poor. As someone who grew up poor and has been around a lot of uh, um, people who are facing the reality of living in poverty, the Bible is very honest about poverty not being good. As you've seen friends or maybe you've struggled to have a roof over your head, that grieves God. So what does the Bible say about money? It turns out it says a lot. There's uh, this book in the Bible, the Proverbs, and it's really a training manual for parents to pass on wisdom or the best way to live from one generation to the next. It's written like a father sitting down with the son, a parent sitting down with their child. And over and over again, it talks about wealth or what to do with money. It says things like wealth can protect you from harm or bring you to ruin. People who are lazy are often poor. And yet... Hard workers are sometimes robbed of their wealth by injustice. And sometimes the rich are wealthy because they cheated. Um, so it's it sometimes seems like Proverbs is saying these contradicting things. But that's because it's not giving you absolute universal truths. It's giving you conventional wisdom. That, listen, generally speaking, this is the way life works. And when it comes to money... It seems like it's trying to cover all the bases of what money can and cannot do. So here's just a few things the Proverbs say about money. One, God blesses the righteous with wealth. Some of you have been in churches where that's the only thing they talk about. 
Foolish behavior leads to poverty. Number three, the wealth of fools will not last. The actual Hebrew is lottery winners. Just kidding, that's not the actual Hebrew. Uh, number four, poverty is the result of injustice or oppression. Five, those with money must be generous. Six, wisdom is better than wealth. In other words, money, having money is not more important than having a wise life. And number seven, wealth has limited value. So here's the thing. The Bible isn't just positive about money, and it's not just negative about money. It's both of those things at the same time. It's way more positive about wealth than socialism and way more negative about wealth than capitalism. It's positive about it because this is God's good world. God made this world and you with your abilities to be able to work and provide and care for the world around you. But it's also a warning because there's a very big danger when it comes to money. There's a reason Jesus gives it a name. It is not a neutral commodity. It's a principality and power he calls mammon. As in like demon. Like something fighting for your ultimate allegiance. And when it gets you, it will ruin you. It will ruin your capacity for joy. It will ruin your relationships. It will ruin you. And here are the big three things Proverbs, the dad is trying to tell the son in Proverbs. One, you should know the power money has over you. Two, you should understand why it has that power. And three, you must both break and use the power money has in your life. So, what power does it have over you? Last week I was talking to Mac Early who has spent some time with Mr. Dillard, the founder of Dillard's. And he told Mac that the companies that I have built in my life have at times become my prison. And then he tells Mac, you got to get the dollar sign out of your eye and find something, find a way to serve. Find a way to serve the world around you. Um, I've seen time and time again people become corrupted by this becoming the center of their life, including people like us. Maybe even especially people like us. Because it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like it's one of the big sins, right? But let me tell you how you already know this. When somebody hands you a business card with a Jesus fish on it, what's your instinct? Are you like, oh, yes. Now I know I can trust this person to act with absolute integrity and give me a fair price and not... What's your instinct? Yeah. And the reason why is because for some reason, church people, and I think it's because we live in the West, church people, we've kind of written this off. But in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the very word used for like dishonesty in work is the same word the Old Testament uses for sexual sins like adultery. And I've seen people who consider them morally squeaky clean uh, do things like this and not think anything about it. Maybe for you, it's, a, it's being a lawyer who pads the bill for more hours or a mechanic lying about labor that you did on the car or lying on your time card. I've seen church people who considered themselves you know, super righteous do something like that without hesitation and you need to know God is at your work and God sees and it's an abomination if you love money too much it's as much of a tragedy in God's eyes as if you're cheating on your spouse 
Because to love money is the root of all evil. And since you already know that verse and that saying, you probably need to be warned that chances are living in America in the 21st century, just because it's in the air, we love money too much. And we're largely blind to it. So here's what Proverbs says. I love this verse. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. The dad is teaching the son to ask what I call a judgment day question. You may be tempted to use dishonest weights when it comes to your business, whatever that looks like. But one day you will be weighed. And those judgment day questions are important for us to keep in front of us. Judgment day questions are like, what, what is my life amounting to? What am I doing with my life? What, who am I helping? What contribution am I making? And the reason this is important is because wealth blinds us to those kind of questions. What it does is it sucks us into this frantic cycle of consumption, right? Because we think, if I can afford it, I should afford it. We think if I can borrow it, I should borrow it. We let the world around us influence how we think about money and we ask all the wrong questions. But by the way, we forget that the people who work in retail, and maybe you work in retail, so maybe you could be one of these people who doesn't do this. But for the most part, the people who work in retail aren't invested in your financial future. They're not really invested in your future. They're trying to make a living. They're part of the same system you are. And in other words, the people that we mostly allow to influence our financial decisions are not concerned with how those decisions affect us over the long term. And it works because, and the wind in our sails, people are spending billions of dollars to make you think you would be happy if you just had the thing you don't have. <clears throat> have you noticed how much attention you're giving Today, over a hundred times, you're going to be told that particular lie as you're driving past billboards, as you're listening on the radio or watching TV or on the internet or whatever. And so we buy and spend, and we, we spend money we, have, we don't have to get stuff we don't need, and a few hours after we get it, we won't even want. And the Bible says you can actually step outside of that lie. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to live along that treadmill, the deceitfulness of wealth. So, why does this work so well on us? Because one of the things money does, one of the powers it has over us, is it makes us feel like we're in control when we have it. Just for the most part, with money, you can get a lot of stuff. You can get people to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Here's what Proverbs says. People curse the one... This is a really powerful, uh, um, really relevant verse that doesn't seem like it at first. People curse the one who hoards grains... But they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. What are you talking about, Proverbs? This is not someone doing anything dishonest. It's a shrewd business decision that we would call playing the market. But Proverbs is talking about the money power has on, on the power money has on us. Because it's a temptation to be in charge and in control of our future, no matter what it costs other people. And it does cost someone else. So back in the day, this is a person who is stockholding grain, or, or, or uh, storing up the grain, they're hoarding the grain, and what happens when you hoard the grain is supply and demand, right? So the more the demand, the higher the price. And the only problem to that is that there's hungry people out there. 
And the reason the price is going up so much is because that one person who's figured out how to make a little more money is doing this. It's someone using wealth to create more wealth for their own sake and at the expense of people around them. Now, that may not sound very relevant. That may sound like just an agrarian problem that we've moved past. But a few years ago in the New York Times, Paul Krugman, who's an economic economist at Princeton, he said, uh, you know what, before World War II, executives were never paid as much as they are today. Like, before World War II, executives may be paid 10, 20, 10 or 20 times more the person who is on the bottom of their uh, organization. But today, an executive can make up to 100 to 200 to 300 times more. And he said, the reason this happened is the reason uh, that didn't happen before World War II is because there would be a public outrage. Now the outrage is gone. The thing that kept executive salaries in check was that there was, you know, fear of public retaliation. But then he says, we should think of this as not a market trend like the rising value of waterfront properties, but as something more like the sexual revolution of the 1960s. A relaxation of old strictures. A new permissiveness. But in this case, the permissiveness is financial rather than sexual. By the end of the 1990s, the executive motto might as well have been, if it feels good, do it. So you may be thinking, wait a second. Are you telling me the Bible condemns normal business practice? Yeah. But what it's really doing is condemning money. That's the power money has. It can make you think what I just described to you as common practices today is normal. It's not. We were not meant to live that way with each other. Can I tell you, in my life, I've got to spend, in ministry, I've got to spend a lot of time with a lot of wealthy people. And I can almost always divide them into two categories. People who want more for others and people who want more for themselves. Or said another way, People who are very happy and people who are miserable. And I get it. I get why we think this way. I live in the same world you do. I'm living through the inflation just like you are. But people who think money will, will uh, protect them from ruin are living a lie. Here's another way the Proverbs say it. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. But poverty is the ruin of the poor. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. At first glance, it's saying, uh, Proverbs is saying like, look, build up your wealth so you'll have a fortified city. But the next verse complicates that idea because it's saying some people use, a we- use wealth as a way towards life and others use it as a way towards death. The income of the wicked brings punishment and people who use their wealth to wall themselves off from the world eventually find themselves like Mr. Dillard creating a prison. This is true in so many ways. A few weeks ago I told you about Larry James who was a a preacher in Churches of Christ for decades and then over the last 10-15 years he started a great non-profit in Dallas called City Square. And one of the things he did in Dallas was he moved into the community he was serving. It was a very at-risk community. And because he, he had preached, uh, he was a middle-class preacher for such a long time, when he moved into, all his buddies, all his peers, all his friends were like, what are you doing? You've got kids. And after he lived there for six months to a year, Larry James started telling them, you don't get it. 
I am safer than I've ever been in my entire life. The people that I, I live with, they know me and I know them and they protect me. And we pursue often a kind of protection. And then get this, in my experience, we start not just making a, a way of protecting ourselves from other people who don't have as much as we do, but we also start talking about things differently. So these days we talk a lot about justice. Do you know in the Bible, every single time that I'm aware of, almost every single time or every single time, when it talks about justice, it's talking about economic. It's talking about people who have nothing and people who have exploiting them. And the thing money does... When you have it, there's a temptation to keep it away from the people who don't or keep away from the people we don't and we'll be safe. That is not true. You know where I learned this? When I was in Fort Worth. Because when I was in Fort Worth, heroin overdoses, death by heroin overdoses, one of the places it happened the most in the world was Frisco, Texas. One of the most wealthy places in the nation. In fact, they've done studies on this. There's a woman named Madeline Levine who wrote a book called The Price of Privilege. And in it, she said, America's newly identified at-risk group is preteens and teens from affluent, well-educated families. In spite of the economic and social advantages, children of affluence experience among the highest rates of depression, substance abuse, anxiety disorders, somatic copings, and unhappiness of any group of children in this company. Ecclesiastes has been saying this long before Miss Levine wrote her book. Ecclesiastes says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I think of Jesus. And this one time in the Gospel of Luke, he's teaching, and this guy comes to him and is like, Oh, yeah, Jesus, big fan. Love the lilies on the field stuff. Uh, real quick, my uh, brother, my father died, and my brother is trying to like cheat me out of some inheritance. So Jesus, could you go tell my brother? And by the way, I relate to this guy because I've been doing this for a while and I also know my own heart. Is this not the Jesus we want to follow? Hey Jesus, big fan, love your stuff, got a bumper sticker, all that. Could you go tell other people how to follow you? He wants his brother to give him the money. And Jesus goes, man. I like, I like to think Jesus said it like that. Man. Who? appointed me as the arbiter of your family. And then he says this, oh, this line that I think every Christian needs to get tattooed on them living in America. Maybe get it right here. Life does not consist of the abundance of your possessions. Maybe, maybe put it on your whatever hand you use to reach for your wallet. Because we think it does. Even though you've never been to a funeral where people ask somebody like me to talk about how much they had or how much was in storage or how big the square footage of their house was. You've never been to that. Because we know when life comes to an end, what matters in life is not what we spend our days pursuing. And that's why Jesus is trying to tell this guy this. He doesn't endorse this guy's greed. Instead, He tells him a story. About someone who did what the Proverbs just said. Someone who stockpiled uh, grain. And they got really wealthy and they had a lot and they felt really good about it. And then they stepped back and they're like, look, 
I got so much. What could I do? I mean, there's people who are hungry around me who could really use the grain, but I'm not going to do that. And so he says, this is what the guy says to him. He says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns that I have, and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Great plan. Retirement 101. And Jesus says, God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he turns and he starts talking to us. And I hope you can take his words to heart. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. But is not rich toward God. You know the thing about that guy? He did not commit any crime. He didn't do anything... He wasn't dishonest. We would call him shrewd. Jesus calls him a fool. Because he lied, he believed a lie about his future. The rich guy thought that the more stuff he had, the more life he had. He thought there was a correlation between the stuff he owned and the amount of time he had left to spend it. He thought prosperity equaled security. And what the Bible has been saying from the beginning is... There's not enough money. And some of you have seen this. Some of you have lived it. You've had everything planned out for your life and then the doctor calls and tells you the news. Or the wreck happens. Or your spouse filed the papers. That's why we're greedy. Greed wouldn't exist without fear. We think it will protect us from stuff. And, and you know, we know intellectually, we know it doesn't work. But I promise you, it's one of the most seductive lies money has. And Jesus is not getting on, he's not, when he tells the story, he's not getting on to the guy because he's planning ahead. Planning ahead is great. That's what wisdom is. Looking ahead and choosing the path that's going to lead to good, a good life. What Jesus is getting on to him is not planning far enough ahead. Those judgment day questions. Questions that money tries to blind us to. That's the power money has over you. And once you understand that that power is built on a lie, you can have a different relationship to it. The problem, Jesus isn't condemning that guy for being rich. Good thing, because we're all rich. Jesus is condemning that guy because he doesn't know why he's rich. He's rich by the grace of God. And you, by the way, are too. You may think you pulled yourself up from the bootstraps. But who gave you the talents and gifts and family you were born into and year you were born into and country you were born into? You may think that you're some transcendental, you know, gifted worker. But if you were born in a yurt in Mongolia in 1300s, you would not be where you are right now. And since all this comes from God, then what we do with it has to honor and give back to Him. And this guy didn't. And his world closes in as his life fades to black. But there is another way. And I love this so much. Here's how the proverb says it. You know what? One person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Listen, I think this verse reflects ultimate reality. I've seen this time and time again. Whoever gives freely gets even more. 
the more generous you are, the more you get back. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about life and joy. You know what I think about? I think about people like David and Ben Becks, who run Flinko. And the way they run Flinko is they try to treat their employees with dignity as they're trying to serve Central Arkansas by building projects that will make it better. I think about Eric and Julie Buckner, who uh, they're entrepreneurs who started all the 10 fitness gyms in Central Arkansas. And the way Eric lights up when he talks about creating jobs for people in our state. Jobs that are good and have dignity to them. I don't brag on people who have my last name a lot on purpose, but I think about my brother, who a lot of you don't know. But Curtis, uh, Curtis, one of the things, he's an entrepreneur, one of the things he has is a little Debbie distributorship. And it doesn't make a lot of money, but almost every penny he has goes to his employees. Very little margin. Very little profit for him. In fact, during COVID, it looked like it might work and operate at a loss. And he's not in this service, so I'll go ahead and tell you what he said. But he told his employees, even if this whole thing shuts, shuts down for months, I will pay you your full salary. Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this complicated arena of money. There is a power money has in us. It must be broken in our lives and it must be used for other people. Not just because it's wise, but because it's who God is. I um, heard about Joni Erickson Tata, who is um, the great Christian speaker and author. She went to Ghana in Africa a few years ago. And while she was there, you know, there was worship and dancing and all these things, but the, the most um, celebratory moment was their offering. And they did as a church what we do with children offering. All, all the people came forward and they were dancing and singing and clapping as they were putting in their meager resources to share with the community of faith. And at the end of it, one African woman stood up and said, Welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy. We have so much joy because we need Jesus so much more. That's how to be rich. How to recognize what really is wealth and what really isn't. So church, may you realize that selfishness is poverty. Generosity and open-handedness is wealth. And may we be rich towards God who has always been rich towards us.